be continuing our series through this gospel at verse 27 today, Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Is there life after death? How can we know if there is life after death? And if there is life after death, what is the nature of that life? What is it like? These are not trivial questions that philosophers kick around for amusement in their spare time. In every culture, think about it, put together your own knowledge of history, in every culture, in every part of the world, in every era of human history, life after death has been a central question with far-reaching social, political, economic, and religious implications. Think of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. They believed that there was life after death, and they stocked their pyramids full of riches to serve in the afterlife. It makes for today for some nice museum exhibits yet many, many years later. They believed in life after death, didn't they? Just the economic implications of this belief are staggering in the building of these pyramids, in the stocking of these pyramids. And that's not to mention the implications personally for the slaves who gave their life to build those pyramids and for those slaves who were executed upon the death of the Pharaoh so that they could continue to serve their Pharaoh in the afterlife. Or think of the Greek philosophers and their Roman successors who believed in an afterlife in which the spirit was freed from the body. There would be an ongoing consciousness in the next life, but it would be free of this miserable shell that we call a body. They held that the resurrection body was utter folly. The whole notion was just foolishness. One Roman writer called it utter trash to think of resurrecting a body. There was no reason to revive garbage as far as he was concerned. This is the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers who followed. How did they know all of this? Human reason. By reasoning their way to the truth, they determined what would be and what would not be in the afterlife. We move to a different channel. Mediums and spiritists believe in life after death. Their source is not human reason so much as communication with the dead. Countless masses of humanity believe in reincarnation, living in constant anticipation that death will recycle them back into the stream of life in a different form. The political, the economic, and the social implications are vast, to be sure. There are people even who starve themselves to death. Not because they cannot find food, but because they want to be recycled into another life form of higher status. Tremendous implications today. Now, Islam, Judaism, teach that there is a life after death with the faithful enjoying the bliss of paradise. Under the iron fist of communism, think of Eastern Europe, for instance. 
culture proceeded on the official position that there is no afterlife, there is no spiritual realm. Under the influence of enlightened thinking and modernism, the universities of our land retreated into a backwater of secularism in which any notion of life after death was taboo. And where are we in Eastern Europe? Communism falls and there is a surge of interest and attention about spiritual matters and the afterlife. Where are we here in our secular campuses of today? You know that, that one of the growing emphases in secular campuses, to, campuses today are courses giving credit to students who dabble in the occult and in spiritism including supposed communication with the dead. These are courses you can earn bachelor's level, master's level uh, credits to dabble in these matters. With all of our secularism, we've set aside all of this idea of any spiritual realm and any life after this world. But now here we are coming full circle and turning back again with interest in what is to come after this life. As twisted as, and as confused as it sometimes is, the human spirit will simply not let the notion of an afterlife alone. Nothing has quenched this interest. There is a pervasive sense that life does not simply end at death, a sense that there is life beyond the grave. A few voices have said utter nonsense. A minority of voices and a minority that had its representatives in Jesus' day as well. Joining the attack against Jesus at the temple a couple of days before his death are the Sadducees. They are a distinctive religious sect in Judaism. And they believed that they could trap Jesus in his words and discredit him by getting him to admit the utter irrationality of resurrection. Remember chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. Every day he's teaching at the temple. The chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Chapter 20 and verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. And so they have attempted to get at Jesus by catching him in his words, trapping him in something that he says to discredit him. They want him dead. The first attempt we found there in verses 20 through 26, as Jesus uh, answers their question concerning taxation. The Pharisees and Herodians coming together, they lay the trap for Jesus, but he answers it perfectly. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And so we read in verse 26 of chapter 20, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. But now it is the Sadducees' turn. Now, 
they will try their hand at trapping Jesus. And the Sadducees in verses 27 through 33 will challenge the rationality of resurrection. Verse 27, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Let me fill in just a few details about the Sadducees very briefly. They were a party of wealthy, powerful aristocrats. The chief priest, which would have been the highest position allowed by the Romans in Israel, was chosen from among their ranks. They gained and held their power by cooperating with the Romans. Theologically speaking, the Sadducees were strict materialists. That means they did not believe in anything spiritual. They did not believe then in a resurrection of the body or in any sort of afterlife. The spirit, they taught, died with the body. Remember that. This is their belief. It is also important for us going into this to know that the Sadducees held only the Pentateuch as authoritative. Now, there is some debate on this because none of the writings of the Sadducees survive. We only know about them from their detractors and their enemies, but it does appear that they held only to the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic books. That was Scripture. Everything else has been added and is, is in, illegitimate. So believing this, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection. They hold only to the first five books of Scripture, they are utter materialists. And it was a theology that very much matched their world and their situation of wealth and power and prestige. It's all about who dies with the most toys. That is the Sadducees' way. And you might say here, well, wait a minute, it's not just the Pentateuch. What, what, what about these other passages of Scripture by the prophets? Well, as I said, they dismissed those, first of all. But even on those passages, they could argue them away and just say these are prophets writing under Greek influence and the like. And all of the no, every notion of resurrection in the Bible, they dismiss. So that's the Sadducees who are coming at Jesus here. Pure secularists in one sense of the term. And they try to catch Jesus in his words, presenting to him a question they believe he will never be able to answer. Verse 28, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a, man, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. What are they talking about? They are, of course, drawing from the Pentateuch, from the writings of Moses. And we find here a rather strange directive from God in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. We read that if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This goes back, of course, to the time when God gave the promised land to the Israelites, devising specific means by which every tribe would permanently retain its allotment of land. 
And this marriage law, we refer to it as leveret marriage from the Latin brother's husband, or husband's brother rather, is one of the means that God uses to make sure the land always stays with the family. No one can be left out because they don't give birth to a son. So there is little indication in historically that the Sadducees really cared at all about this law or that they ever practiced it. But they believe that here is a soft underbelly for the doctrine of resurrection. And they take their sword and they pierce it, that underbelly, with this question, verse 29. There's the background. There's the law of God. God has said this. This brother-in-law must take his brother's wife and, give, uh, and, and seek to raise up offspring in his brother's name. Now there were, they say, verse 29, seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, there's a textual variant there where some translations have a longer verse, I guess for technical purposes with this text, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, depending on how you read it, but the point is the same. The first one married the woman, died childless, the second, the same, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Before we get into this very deeply, just a curious observation here. I really doubt that the Jews would have any problem. We could certainly add the Mormons of today that there would be any problem with one man coming to heaven and finding seven wives awaiting him there. But curiously, the other way around just doesn't work in their picture. One wife for seven husbands will never work. What are we going to do about this, Jesus? And their point, of course, is that this shows God would never demand such a thing of his people, knowing that this kind of impossible situation would come of it. They're convinced that they have exposed the doctrine of resurrection as entirely irrational. But Jesus renounces the flawed premise of the Sadducees. This is how he responds. They are basing this scenario on a flawed premise. That is, they are not, they are not, it is not based on reality. Verse 34, Jesus answers, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. This is Jesus' response, and it takes a little bit of work to pick our way through that. So let's go back to verse 34. The Sadducees have based their argument against the resurrection on a faulty assumption. What is that assumption? Life here is what life must be like if there is a resurrection. Basically the same thing, a continuation of life as we know it here. Jesus says that's wrong thinking. You are right. In this world, verse 34, we are married, men marry, and women are given in marriage in that setting and culture. 
But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now this phrase, those considered worthy of taking part in the resurrection, assumes that some will not be worthy of taking part in the resurrection. So is Jesus saying here that some people will be annihilated? That is, they will not experience an afterlife. That's clearly not what Jesus taught. Luke chapter 12, I remind you, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Now listen to it. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If there is annihilation, if there is the end of life when the body dies, why fear being thrown into hell? It, it, it necessitates an ongoing experience on the part of the lost. Jesus also taught in Luke chapter 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We read there as Jesus tells that parable, the rich man also died and was buried. End of story? No, Jesus says in Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham. So it would be a false conclusion to say Jesus is saying here some people will not enter into the afterlife. But that is not the context here. That is not the framework from which the Sadducees are working. They are thinking in terms of the resurrection of the righteous taught by the Pharisees and taught, in fact, by the prophets of the Old Testament. So referring simply to the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus says those who attain that resurrection, life is not exactly then as it is now. There are differences. No one dies. No one marries. They're like the angels of heaven. Now this seems rather strange to us to think about existence in, an, in, a, in a world in which there is not marriage. I'd like to do a lot more thinking on it, but I spent some time just meditating on this point, and perhaps I can encourage you to meditate further and talk to me about your, your thoughts as to why this might be the case. But I have five separate ideas that just continue to blend one with the other. And there's somewhat overlap here. But think through this with me. Why would there not be marriage in heaven? For those happily married uh, to one mate for life, that's not necessarily a real exciting thought, that you not be married in heaven. For others, it's a relief, I'm sure, for different reasons. But why would there not be marriage in heaven. Well, first of all, as is indicated here by Christ's words, there's no need for procreation. No one dies. There's no need to populate the new earth. And since there will be no such need, perhaps our Creator will eliminate the sex drive. I don't know, but there's a drive for us to continue to populate the earth just on that level of, of matters. That will no longer be the case. By the way, a side note, that's not at all what the Mormons think as they're in their teaching. You can go on and at least the men have multiple wives and populate their own universe over which they rule. Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not the case at all. There will be no need for procreation. Secondly, there will be no need for the paradigm of sex by which we learn to know a mate so as to better understand what it means to know God. A marital relationship is not even necessary to know God in this life. 
Singleness can be an equally valuable means of knowing God. But in the next age, marital intimacy will become an obsolete means of knowing God better because we don't need any help loving God with all of our heart. We will be with Him, and seeing Him as He is, we will be like Him. And this aspect of marriage will be unnecessary for our sanctification. Thirdly, the pleasures of sex will pale in comparison to the pleasure we find in God and in total sanctification. Fourthly, our sanctif- and blending away now from just the purely physical aspect of marriage, our sanctification will be so complete that we will love everyone with such mature, complete love that there will be no motivation to love one person above all others. We will love all perfectly, fully, and completely in an experience of love and intimacy of relationship that is something we can only dream about in this life. I think all husbands and wives here present, of which there are many gone obviously today, but all of us here, and I think all of those that are traveling on this holiday weekend would come back and say the very same thing, it's work to love one person in marriage. To love your mate as you love yourself is work. We find in our fallen condition how far short we come of God's standard and how self-centered we are. God gives us in this world this project of man and woman relating together and seeking to honor His call to love unconditionally and fully and selflessly this one person who has given themselves to you fully and completely. That in itself is a project for fallen sinners. But in heaven, in eternity, in the resurrection to which we hope to attain through our salvation, no such problem. We will love all people as we should. And I think that blends then into the fifth point, and that is that our relationships will be viewed less from the angle of me and my family and more from the angle of us and our Father. Did you notice as he said there, he spoke there of living as the children of God. They are God's children, verse 36, since they are children of the resurrection. There will be a sense where family takes on much larger proportions in eternity. Let's admit it, there is something that can be very self-centered about family. And Christians need to take very careful note of that. There's a lot of family idolatry that goes on in the name of Christ, isn't there? We love our children, for instance, but let's remember we're loving our own flesh when we do that. We can be very selfish in our family orientation. That orientation, that self-centeredness will be gone in eternity. And there will be a proper relationship with all people, a brotherly, sisterly relationship as we see ourselves as one big family with these divisions unnecessary because depravity is gone. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, you have made a false assumption. Life in the age to come will not be precisely as life in this age. And what are the Sadducees doing? They're obviously aiming at shock value here. 
They present this woman who enters heaven's gates, as it were, to be greeted by seven drooling men, all anxious to take her on a romantic weekend. They're they're stuck in this world. They're stuck in the physical stuff of their world. And Jesus counters with the truth that the age to come will not be a mere continuation of this life. It will be something wholly other. Now, there will be many similarities. And I like to stress that because we have the very goofed-up image of eternity in heaven being that we sit on a cloud with a gold crown playing a harp. I can't imagine a more boring existence for the rest of eternity than to do something like that. That's not at all the case. There will be many similarities. We will, in the afterlife, eat and drink and work and celebrate And yes, we will worship God, but it won't be sitting on a cloud by yourself and trying to figure out this crazy harp. We'll be singing in praise around the throne of God. And for all eternity, we will be doing things that we like to do. And we'll be doing them with no curse. So many similarities. But let's take Jesus at His word here. There will be significant differences. We will not die. We will not marry. We will be like the angels, performing the work of God throughout all eternity. And we will see ourselves as one family. I think if the, uh, the differences where we really emphasize difference, it will be particularly in this area of relationships. We will relate to God differently. We will relate to one another differently. And the whole division of family and husband and wife will be unnecessary. And believe me, those husbands and wives who are happily married to one mate, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. We will not be going into heaven and into God's presence and find that life had something better. It will be a different world. So Jesus speaks, does he not? As if he were an eyewitness of heaven's order. Rather than stressing that point, he meets the Sadducees on their own turf. And that leads to the next section, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus presents biblical support for the resurrection of the dead. Is that clear what I'm saying? I think I've lost you here, but Jesus has been in eternity. He knows exactly what the afterlife is all about. But he doesn't go there... Rather, he goes right to their turf and to their Bible and says, your Bible, the first five books of the Bible, confirm that there is an afterlife, that there is a resurrection from the dead. He could have appealed to the prophetic writings, which he doesn't do. I think of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, a classic text, particularly pointed, which says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a clear reference to resurrection there in Daniel chapter 12. But remember the Sadducees dismiss the book of Daniel. So Jesus says, let's go to your book. Jesus believes in Daniel, by the way, and all the prophets, but let's go to the Pentateuch, which you believe, these first five books of Scripture, Verse 37, in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. In the account of the bush, you have to know your Old Testament a little bit, don't you? There, this is before chapter and verse division, so he doesn't say in Exodus chapter 3, but he says in the account of the bush. You remember that bramble that is on fire out in the desert as Moses is a shepherd, and he comes to that bush that's on fire and it's not being consumed. And then God speaks out of the bush, revealing himself to Moses in that passage. In that passage, Moses writes, recording what God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Sadducees, you can see them there nodding their head. Yes, Jesus, what in the world does that have to do with resurrection? We understand Moses in the bush. We've read that many times. But Jesus draws the conclusion, the profound conclusion in verse 38 then, that on the basis of that passage in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is he saying? The three patriarchs were long dead when God revealed himself to Moses. Yet God claims to be their God. It is a logical impossibility to be the God of a person who does not exist. God may have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but God speaks of the patriarchs in terms that indicate He is now their God. It's true, frankly. Exodus 3 is not written to prove Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have entered the afterlife. That's not the reason for its being written. Yet in Exodus 3, God reveals His nature to Moses. Now here's the key, and, and I think we understand Exodus 3 properly. In fact, it is often said that the word is is the clincher. Well, in the Hebrew, the word is doesn't even appear. That's not the ultimate point, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the conclusion, the only other way that you can see it. But I think rather there's something a bit deeper that's going on in Exodus chapter 3. God is revealing his name to Moses. And as he reveals his name to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? I am the promise-fulfilling God. I am the God who called Abraham, who made the promises to Abraham of a great offspring, of a Messiah who would come, of the land of promise. I am the one who made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, time out here. Is Abraham dead or alive? He's dead. Is the promised land in the possession of the Israelites when God reveals this to Moses? No, right? If we know our Old Testament history, he's saying not, I'm the God of that Abraham guy that I really blew it and didn't quite get it done before he died to give him the promised land like I said. That's not what God says. I am the God of Abraham. I am the promise-fulfilling God. If he is the promise-fulfilling God, then Abraham must be alive because God has not yet fulfilled his promise to Abraham. As Hebrews 11 verse 39 makes clear and confirms, the patriarchs died having not fully received God's promises. 
And God says to Moses, Israel, you will be revived. You will be taken out of slavery. You will come to the promised land. You will conquer that land because I am the God of Abraham. I am still in a functioning relationship with Abraham and the covenant is very much alive. In fact, remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God says there will be 400 years of slavery. God knew from the very beginning that he would not fulfill the land, the promised land promise to Abraham during Abraham's lifetime. Yet he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hughes quotes William Lane, who says, If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant and of which the formula, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a symbol. It is out of fidelity to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. So death, Jesus teaches, out of the Pentateuch, out of Exodus 3, death does not end God's relationship to his children. They live on after death in relationship to him. For to him all are alive, Jesus says here. That is, people continue to live in relationship to God, both in this life and in the afterlife. God is eternal. Having given us life, we will relate to him forever as human beings in one way or another. It is a stunning interpretation of Exodus 3, and it permits no rebuttal. Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. Now, if you've been following here the last few weeks, we've been really thinking through Luke, compliments aren't exactly flowing freely from the religious leaders toward Jesus at this point in time, are they? Well said, teacher. He's got them. They know there is nothing that can be said in opposition to this reasoning from the text of Scripture. And it is my opinion, though this is debated, it's my opinion that this has never been thought of before. This is new. This is new interpretation. And they know that Jesus has landed on something very important. Perhaps this is the Pharisees who are quite happy at least to defeat the Sadducees at this point in time if they can't defeat Jesus. But the professional teachers of the law, these are people who pour over the scriptures and they commend Jesus. They're probably pleased to see the notoriously harsh and boastful Sadducees defeated. The net result is found in verse 40, and no one dared ask him any more questions. The power brokers of Judaism had tried to seize Jesus by force, but the people were in the way. They had sought to trap him in his words. That tack had miserably failed. They went away frustrated. Jesus had to be stopped. But how would they do it? They needed a big break. They needed a way to find him alone. And they needed a reason to turn him over to the Romans. They went back with their tail between their legs but they kept working. For now, they went home frustrated and worried sick about what Jesus might do at the feast of the Passover just around the corner. He had thoroughly 
defeated his enemies. But in doing so, do you notice, and there's a great point here for us, Jesus did not simply knock his enemies over. In the defeating of his enemies, he taught truth. There's a great principle there for us as we attack false teachers. And by the way, that's a good thing to do. God calls his church to speak against false teaching. That's our job. That is an assignment from the Lord and a stewardship that we have to defend the truth of God once delivered to the saints. But as we do that, our goal should never be to belittle and to knock down and simply to tear down another position. Our, our goal should always be in exposing falsehood to explain more fully the truth. And that's what Jesus does. In the trap that was laid for him concerning taxation, he lays down a solid truth which has inspired many politicians to our very day. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Concerning the resurrection, he lays out the truth. The next life will not be just like this life, and there is a resurrection of the dead. How do we know this? How do we know? I asked at the beginning, is there life after death? How do we know that there is life after death? We do not learn much about life after death in this passage, but we learn it from the mouth of Jesus. We learn it from the one who has defeated death himself. How do we know this truth? We do not learn these things by conjuring up the spirits of the dead and asking them what they think, asking them to give us support in our belief of an afterlife. We do not arrive at these truths by means of naked human reason like the Greeks and the Romans. We do not appeal to a spurious holy book filled with fantasies about the future such as the Book of Mormon that speaks about us running our planets and our universe filled up with our children. We believe in the resurre resurrection of the dead because God's Son has revealed it to us. The one authoritative voice in all of the universe has said there is life past the grave. We learn the doctrine of resurrection from the one who has defeated death, demonstrating his power over death in both his healing ministry on earth and in his own resurrection from the grave. God has spoken. The author of life and the sovereign Lord of the earthly realm and the heavenly realm has revealed his truth to us. And it is his Holy Spirit who witnesses with our spirit that we have indeed heard the absolute truth. And so the resurrection life is our hope, both now and for eternity. Someday, think of it and rejoice in it. Someday, as a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will enter the presence of the Lord. As 2 Corinthians 5.8 says it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What we have to fear in death is nothing but the laying down of the body. That's nothing. 
because the laying down of the body means that we then are freed to enter into the presence of Christ. And we will be changed to reflect His nature and His beauty when we see Him as He is. There will be something in His face, in His presence, in His likeness that will transform us into the same likeness of glory. In the end, our physical bodies will be resurrected from the grave and granted life in the presence of God for eternity. You know what Satan is doing in this attack by the Sadducees? He is saying to all the people listening, and he is sending the message to Jesus, resurrection talk is silliness. It's just stupid. You know what Jesus is doing as he takes on that attack? He is preparing to defeat death. The resurrection is a precious doctrine that must be held and a doctrine Jesus is going to demonstrate in just a few short days. That phrase that we sung, He died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. This is the project of Jesus Christ, to bring death down. And he stands to this attack and says that the scriptures teach the resurrection of the dead. And he knows that soon he will demonstrate the resurrection of the dead. And so the question for us is not merely whether we believe in the resurrection. Whether we believe in life after death, the issue is rather will we enter into the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? Or will we be separated for, from Him for eternity? As human beings, we simply cannot get away from God. We will relate to Him in a hostile manner, or we will relate to Him in a reconciled manner through all eternity. The question is, have we received the resurrection life of Jesus Christ through active faith in Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. If we have not, we will be separated from Him for eternity. If we have, we have the privilege of entering His presence and being transformed and living for eternity the life of God. This is our hope, Christian. It's the hope of which we have sung, that He came and died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. That is a hope that can and a hope that should carry us through every trial and every challenge and every difficulty of life. Jesus Christ lives, and so will I. I pass this life in faith, but he lives that death may die. In that I hope, in that I carry forward, in that I trust. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for this truth that has been revealed through the mouth of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the resurrection hope. 
As Pastor read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, thank you for that reading. Thank you for that text of Scripture as well. To know that without the resurrection of Christ, our faith is in vain, does not scare us. It is reality. It's the truth. We have nothing apart from the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that there is a resurrection of the dead. That our spirits will live on after our body is laid to rest and that someday our body will rise from the grave and that we will be body and spirit forever with the Lord. How rich we are. What a heritage is ours. What an inheritance awaits us. God, help us to contemplate and to meditate. And I pray that this truth would settle down over our spirits and that through the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit, we would be sanctified as we contemplate this great doctrine. We cannot live any better than our vision of you and our knowledge of the true doctrine of your word. So help us, God, I pray, to live better because we know the truth that you have revealed in your word. Help us to this end as we meet the challenges and the difficulties of life. Thank you for the resurrection power of Christ. Thank you that it lives within us, and thank you that it is our future hope. If there is anyone who knows you not as Savior here, I pray that you'll draw them to that resurrection message and that they might realize that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. May anyone separated from you come to know that joy through Jesus today, I pray in his name. Amen.